Hello and welcome to episode 8 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and Omega Level mutant Giles Goff. And I'm filmmaker and hero for hire, Phil Coleman. And during this Corona Clips Now, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to slip into our tights and fight crime by sticking on our film geek hats to analyse our first and hopefully not our last look into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, specifically focusing on 2019's Captain Marvel. We'll be looking at the origins of Carol Danvers, the parallels between Captain Marvel and a certain Old Testament sea parter, and reflect on how sometimes bad people can say good things. Phil, who's your favourite character in the MCU films specifically? From the films, my favourite would be Ant-Man. I don't know, he's just a little bit of an underdog, you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's the guy who could be dead big or dead small. He mm-hmm. just is the most unlikely hero with the most unlikely yeah. power. I just, Absolutely. I don't know, I just like it. I'd have to say uh, Captain America is by far my favourite character. I think the way they managed to take a character who sometimes can be seen as being a bit two-dimensional and gave him a, a compelling character arc is really fantastic. However, I think the character that I most like has to be Nick Fury, alright? Mm. So let's let's think this through for a moment. Only has one good eye, really good at assembling teams, Yeah. looks fantastic in a black coat. I mean, <laughs> am I talking about me or Nick I, Fury? I, you I, can't I, tell, I can, can see you? where you were going with that one, yeah. Patron yeah. saint of jackets himself. <laughs> <laughs> I left out that we're both screaming badasses as well, because I feel that could be taken as red at this point. I was going to say, like, yeah. you, you, you've, you've got to have some air of modesty somewhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly. Shall we get into Phil's facts? Yes. Captain Marvel is a 2019 American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character Carol Danvers. Produced by Marvel Studios and distributed by Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, it is the 21st film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Set in 1995, the story follows Danvers as she becomes Captain Marvel after Earth is caught in the centre of a galactic conflict between two alien civilizations. Development of the film began as early as May 2013, and the story borrows elements from Roy Thomas's 1971 Cree Skrull War comic book line. The cutout character that Veers shoots in the Blockbuster store was originally supposed to be the mask from 1994, when Veers mistaken it for the green face of a Skrull, but the filmmakers couldn't secure the rights. So she shot Schwarzenegger's head off in True Lies. If you're going to um, substitute the mask for anything, it may yeah, as well be yeah. Schwarzenegger in True Lies. When Stan Lee makes his cameo, God bless his soul, he is seen reading the script for Kevin Smith's Mole Rats from 1995 yeah. and reciting the yeah. line, trust me true believer. As revealed on Smith's YouTube page, Stan's health was in decline and he could not muster mm. his trademark enthusiasm, so the producers looped in Lee's unused audio from Mole Rats. How cool That's was interesting. that? To, for those that don't know, Mole Rats was Kevin Smith's second film to, after he produced Clerks and it bombed hard. No. Nobody oh. went to see it. Even out of Marvel fans, out of Kevin Smith fans like myself, nobody really likes it. However, Stan Lee plays a significant part in the role. It's more than a cameo. He he sort of turns up and gives the words of advice to a main character. However, in that film, there are characters who read Marvel comics. So let's not talk too much about it because otherwise we start getting into paradox territory. And as has been established, when paradoxes yeah. come into this podcast, our brains start to bleed out our ears. I've not got any spare 
brains left. You know what I mean? It's had, they're dead hard to get hold of. There's a clip on YouTube where Kevin Smith reacts to that particular thing about the mole rats. Um, oh, brain. Yeah. The hilarious thing is that you can tell in his conversations, he sort of thinks of himself like a bit of a failed filmmaker. He's not as successful as he'd like to be. Yeah. You can sort of tell that in what he's the way he talks. And he said he really loved that scene because it, it sort of made him go, oh, They've heard of me over there. Check it out. <laughs> if we if we can find it, we'll put links into the into the description for you guys. Okay. So Goose, the cat, well, mm-hmm. the flurkin. Spoilers. Yeah. Is played by four different very professional cat actors named Reggie, Rizzo, Gonzo, and Archie. Rizzo and Gonzo both came from shelters. Had oh, never wow. been in a film before and were rescued for the film. Did you know? Also, Reggie is male. I think pretty much all the cats that they uh, that they try to train are male because male cats tend to be more tra- trainable than female cats. Try telling that to my cats. (laughs) They can be a nightmare. (laughs) In February 2019, Marvel launched the official website of the film, which emulates the design from the 1990s, including HTML frames, a mix of rainbow fonts, pixelated GIFs, a hit counter, a guest book, and a low-resolution trailer framed inside a window resembling Real Player. Now, I don't know if you all remember Real Player. Whoa. That's a blast from the past. I'm not going back, Phil. I'm not going back. I'm not going (laughs) back to those times. None of us need that. So, Ben Mendelsohn was called... Ben Mendel scroll when he was in his prosthetic makeup, which I think's great. Love that guy. He's yeah, a great no, actor as well. I need to see more he's... of his stuff. I love the fact as well that when Ben Mendelsohn speaks, he's using his like native Australian accent as well. No, it gives it nice gives touch. it that little kind of like you want that mate kind of thing. It's great. Pinar Toprak signed on to compose the film's score, making her the first woman to score an MCU film. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's, Representation, that's awesome. yo. So, the Nine Inch Nails t-shirt worn by Carol is a bootleg. According to Rob Sheridan, the band's former art director, the rectangle sh- surrounding the NIN wordmark should be mm-hmm. the same width as the typography found in the logo. Marvel subsequently reached out to Nine Inch Nails, and an official Nine Inch Nails t-shirt commemorating Captain Marvel became available. How cool that's that? adorable. Speaking of music, most of the songs featured in the era are sung by 90s female singers. So, mm. Desri, you gotta be, no doubt, just a girl, garbage. Yeah. I'm only happy when it rains. TLC, waterfalls, salt and pepper. What a man, amongst others. I, I obviously clocked that it was '90s music because that's the stuff I was growing up with. I had waterfalls on cassette, wow. but I guess I, I didn't quite <laughs> twig that it was all female. female I remember but, yeah. being in my music B Tech, and I had to make a mixtape from a CD on a cassette as part of one of my modules. It gave me a proper appreciation for like just how much time and thought goes into making a yeah. mixtape, especially from a cassette. Yeah, yeah. Because it's hard. I kind of cheated a little bit, though. I burnt my own CD, and then I just played it. And <laughs> so I didn't have the full experience. It's like Phil's teachers were trying to teach him a lesson, and he was going, no, I don't want to learn anything today. Yeah, you know? No, I am going to do it my way. <laughs> the film was the first from Marvel Cinematic Universe to have a female lead, and it was released to cinemas on International Women's Day. Oh, well, I didn't clock that. That's awesome. I really enjoyed this film, because there was just so much empowerment in it. The filmmakers used real-world animal biology as reference for the look of the scroll transformations. Dave Hodgins, the digital domain visual effects supervisor, said, We looked at a lot of references, like squids and octopus, things that change colour, and we looked at things that shed their skin and essentially more. And we looked at time lapses of mushrooms growing and slow motion popcorn exploding. I knew about the squid thing. I did not know about the popcorn. I love that. that You you can see it, though. Like, if you've watched the Mm. film, you can sort of picture it as well. You see where they got their um, influence from. Nick Fury tells Goose, I'm trusting you not to eat me, towards the end of the movie. Shortly afterward, Goose scratches Fury, causing him to lose his left eye, as he's seen at the 
the very end with a patch over his left eye. This is a callback to Captain America the Winter Soldier, where Fury tells Captain America, last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. <laughs> <laughs> Those little connections, man. Oh, so that good. is brilliant. I did not make that connection. That's fantastic. I just love that. Fantastic. When Larson showed up on set to film the post credit scene, uh, she got a redacted script page with everything blacked out except for her own line. There were no actors present. The crew couldn't even tell her with who, to whom she was speaking. The other actors filmed it all separately. Brie Larson was digitally inserted into the scene afterwards. post credit scene for Captain Marvel where she turns up and all the other Avengers are analysing that pager. Yeah. And then she just sort of turns up and goes, where's Fury? Where's Fury? Yeah. yeah. Thirsty scenes for Endgame were filmed before Captain Marvel. Viz's scream back at the growling scroll was devised on set. They loved the idea of small pieces of humanity starting to crack through even before she realises she's a human. And last one. In keeping with the era in which the film is set, the action is inspired by many 1990s action movies. For example, Viz sparring with Yon Rog and meeting the supreme intelligence inside a giant simulation invokes scenes from The Matrix in 1999. <laughs> the scene where Viz is just able to board a moving train is reminiscent of the finale of Speed in 1994, while the dogfight in the canyon at the end is an almost shot-for-shot -shot homage to a similar scene in Independence Day from 1996. Awesome, I did I not know, see right. that This is the thing I love about filmmaking, you know, is that you put stuff in there that virtually no one will spot, but for the people who do see it, it's absolutely golden. It makes it worth it for the people who paid so much attention, and for the people yeah. who worked on the film as well. Thank you, Phil. I really enjoyed those ones. I thought they were fantastic. Now, I've been a fan of Marvel Comics since I was 11 and I have amassed a fair bit of knowledge on the subject and yet that is all nothing in comparison to our next guest. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm a 32 year old comic book fan of many, many years. Matt, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. It's really nice to see your pretty face. We'll jump straight into the questions. What can you tell us about the comic book character of Carol Danvers? Carol Danvers has been around since the early 70s Actually, she originally appeared as an Air Force officer uh, working with the human alter ego of the original character, Captain Marvell, who was a Kree soldier. She then, uh, during an incident, took on the powers of uh, Captain Marvel and decided to make her own way as a hero. Uh, she left the Air Force and signed up and began eventually becoming an editor of Woman's Magazine, which was actually an offshoot of the Daily Bugle. Oh, right, okay. She did that for many years, going by the name of Miss Marvel, and had quite a few controversial storylines um, as part of this. She took on a few different names reflecting powers. She is the reason that Rogue of the X-Men actually has the ability of flight and super strength. As during one fight, she was put into a coma by Rogue, who absorbed her powers. That's how I first found out about Miss Marvel, actually. I, I was reading bios of Rogue when I started reading X-Men, and you find out that she got her powers of flight and, and uh, invulnerability from absorbing them from Miss Marvel. That's true. In the 90s, when they actually did the cartoon X-Men, they referenced that bit quite a bit, and it was quite mm. a small... Uh, storyline. Uh, but for a lot of people they don't realise there's that connection between the two of them. Unfortunately she became quite used sporadically throughout the 90s before in the early 2000s uh, they brought her back. Uh, now during this time she'd had a few power changes uh, she'd be known as Warbird Binary and she went back to using the title of Miss Marvel while maintaining her Warbird costume and became quite a prominent figure in the comics again. She first takes on the persona 
of Captain Marvel in an alternate universe in 2005's uh, Marvel's House of M miniseries. That's what pushes her to go for her full potential. But it's not until 2012 which she fully takes on and accepts the man- mantle of Captain Marvel, the Captain Marvel that we know everyone is now familiar with thanks to the films. That's really interesting. Could you tell us about what cultural impact you think she's had? Quite simple. When she first came around into the... 70s, Marvel Comics wanted to show her as a powerful woman and role model, which is why she was shown as a high-ranking member of the Air Force, after which they showed that someone could be an editor of a magazine. And the whole point of her taking the title of Ms. rather than Marvel Girl or Miss Marvel was simply that. They wanted to show empowerment. During the 70s as well, while women in the real world were fighting for these same issues, Carol Danvers was also doing the same. Uh, she was at the forefront of pushing and fighting for equal pay for equal work. That is awesome. Let's just talk a little bit about the, the transition from Ms. Marvel to Captain Marvel. How and why did that come about? It came about, quite simply, because there was a lot of confusion about the title. Marvel had purchased the rights to the name Captain Marvel and unfortunately at this point of time in the comics they didn't have anyone to actually use the name. That's right, Captain Marvel is actually a, a DC character originally, isn't it? It's, it's uh, Shazam. It is Shazam. It's called Captain Marvel originally. So they couldn't, they didn't have a name for it and mm-hmm. they decided that because Captain Marvel the original one from the 60s, the Avenger, had been so intrinsically linked into Carol Danvers' backstory that it would make a good progression of showing her. They wanted a female character in the comic books to take almost centre stage to show that they were equal and were taking everyone's views in, which is why they chose to use Carol Danvers. So when you see her in the Captain Marvel regalia for the first time in House of M, she is the premier human superhero with no male counterparts coming close. The closest that you could say there was in that universe was Spider-Man. That is brilliant. Matt, you've given me a whole new appreciation for Captain Marvel and you've made me want to read the House of M storyline again. Thank you so much and thank you for being on the podcast. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. So that was Matt Haslop, who I'm always in awe of just how much he knows about Marvel. And some of the facts that he came up with absolutely blew me away there. I was really impressed. I really enjoyed listening to Matt speak, to be honest with you. He's got like this really careful tone, especially when he's explaining something. Mm, like he yeah. he just seems very passionate about it, but in a in a knowledgeable way. You could probably make a podcast just with him. You know what I mean? I Let's just talk so. about Marvel Comics. I would have thought so. So anyway, let's get into Finding the Faith in the Film. Na 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 na. <laughs> So That's my favourite bit. <laughs> in this episode, we're actually looking at our first biblical parallel that isn't the gospel. For anyone who's unsure, the gospel is the collective term used to describe the first four books of the New Testament, dealing with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. So the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, okay? Yes. And today we're going to be looking at a story that takes place approximately 1,300 years earlier, okay? Okay. And thanks to Charlton Heston, everyone is fairly familiar with the story of Moses. So let's break it down bit by bit. Yeah. 
Okay. So firstly, in Exodus chapter 2, Moses is born into an Israelite family, whilst the people of Israel are enslaved by the Egyptians. And it, we hear the story of how Moses' mother puts him in a reed basket and leaves him at the side of the river, silently watched over by his sister from a hiding position. That story is sometimes mutated into a, she puts him in the basket by the river and she just kind of floats him down the river, but that's not what is in the in the original story. You know? <laughs> no, that's, that's really... Um, <laughs> not, no, yeah. no throwing babies in rivers, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard no on that nonsense. Yeah. So she puts him in the reed basket, lives him by the side of the river, and he's, she's watched, he's watched over by his sister until Pharaoh's daughter arrives at the river and finds Moses, and she adopts him as her own, and essentially gets Moses' actual mother to, to be paid as a, a wet nurse to sort of look after him. Yeah. So from that time on, Moses is raised an Egyptian, who are the oppressors in this situation. Now, Carol Danvers loses her memory, and the Cree, who are the main alien antagonists in this film, essentially adopt her into this society, primarily because she has access to a power that they are after. They turn her into a soldier for their side, and she's made to fight the Skrulls, who are, we are told, are a vicious enemy. However, we later learn that the Skrulls are actually a minority being oppressed by the wildly militaristic Kree as they expand their empire. So, in the same way as Moses is adopted by an oppressive society, and presumably indoctrinated into their beliefs and prejudices, Carol is also made part of a society, and again indoctrinated by their propaganda. And it's not... Interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's not an exact parallel, for obvious reasons, but the parallels are just close enough for it to be be really fascinating, because... It was... Yeah, I find it interesting, just because um, my my sort of introduction to the scrolls has mostly just been from seeing the cover art of any comic that's got the scrolls in it, and they they always look quite Mm -hmm. imposing, and they look quite um, menacing, and like, they're shape-shifting, they're they're infiltrating, it's the secret invasion, that kind of thing, and I always thought they were the bad guys, so when when, yeah. when it turns out that they weren't in Captain Marvel, I was just like, hang on a minute, has it always been that way? You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, I found it that fascinating. Me. It did not be for six. Yeah, I'm, I'm same as you because the scrolls are predominantly shown to be bad guys in the comics and I love the way how sometimes the Marvel Cinematic Universe just likes to show that it can do whatever it wants. It's not beholden to anybody and it's kind of making its own continuity, so I'm absolutely delighted. Yeah, I, I really like yeah. that. It, it made a lot of sense to be honest. Yeah. So I was thinking about this particular parallel and I wasn't too sure about doing an episode on it until I thought about the end of the film so the parallel bookends the film because towards the, the finale she goes off with the scrolls to help them find a home planet where they'll be safe from the Kree. Yeah. Now this broadly speaking mirrors the way that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the desert wandering until they could find their promised land. It took the Israelites 40 years before they could enter and Moses never got to enter the promised land himself so in a similar fashion and this is based only on what we've seen so far Carol Danvers was away from Earth for about 25 years and while she might have found the scrolls a place to rest she doesn't get to rest herself predominantly because Thanos keeps making life difficult for everybody she was away from she was away from her for 25 years I'm talking about from the end of Captain Marvel oh I see to, right. to Endgame I thought you meant is... I, I got completely confused then and I thought you meant between um, when she originally leaves Earth and joins the crew yeah, and then yeah, comes back I was like wow that's a long time <laughs> yeah she's away for six years in that in that time period that so makes more just sense. to reiterate <laughs> Yeah. So just to reiterate, she is at the end of the film, she goes off to help the scrolls find a home planet. And 25 years later, she comes back because Fury pages her at the end of Infinity War. Yeah. And then she's a major player in, in Endgame. Like I say, it's not the closest of parallels, but it's for me, there are just enough comparisons to make it interesting. Yeah. And I actually had a talk with my friend Nick Matthews, who's the missions director for Life Church Manchester, which is my oh, church. Oh, nice. Okay. He 
he's also a devoted Marvel fan. When I told him about this episode, I, I couldn't keep him off the episode. We normally have only one guest, but frankly, it's our podcast and we can break the rules if we want to. I'll yeah, let, let's do it. I'll let him share some of his thoughts with you. Hi, I'm uh, Nick Matthews and I've been a Marvel fan, I reckon, for about 50 years now. Really enjoy the comics and latterly the, the books and films, obviously, as well. Nick, it is such a pleasure to finally have you on the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here. Are there any faith parallels you can think of in the story? Well, the one that strikes me is the perhaps the obvious one of the parallel of the story of Moses in the Old Testament. It seems the parallels are there right from the start and the, the scene where she looks out over the Cree capital and sees all this sort of power and privilege and just the fact she's been adopted, we, we learn, into this race and it's a different culture to her own. But to sort of complete that sort of sense of the story of the Israelites being released from Egypt, one of the final scenes when we see Ronan the accuser in profile on the spaceship looking out on Earth. He looks like a pharaoh mm. with the costume he's actually wearing. So that was a parallel that came to me straight away. Yeah, no, that is fantastic. I, I didn't even mm. think of those ones. I suppose in some ways you could think it was the Marvel equivalent of Wonder Woman, uh, but I think she goes a bit deeper than that. And uh, I just love one of the quotes from the films where it speaks about, I want to be, I want you to be the best version of yourself. And uh, I think she's a person who becomes the best version of herself in helping others. And I think that resonates and uh, has enduring appeal for us. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you spending some time with us today. So that was Nick Matthews, and I really liked some of the comparisons he pointed out about uh, Ronan looking like a pharaoh and yeah. the way. Yeah, that was a I nice liked search, that a it? lot. <laughs> yeah. The thing I wanted to focus on, though, was the line said by Yonrog, played by Jude Law, to Carol Danvers, where he says, I want you to be the best version of yourself. Now, on a superficial level, that's basically expressing a desire for someone to be the best person they can be. What we call in education self actualization, you know? Yeah, I've heard of to that. To overcome uh, any obstacles and achieve your full potential. Yeah. Which is a, a great message. The problem comes when you think about Yonrog, who basically represents misogyny in this film. Yeah. He's constantly trying to tell her what to do. He knows she's more powerful than him. He tells her, it's great that you've got that power, but you're not allowed to use it. Which, And he, he essentially acts as a stand-in for pretty much every bloke who's told a woman that she can't do something. Which now, the interesting thing is, that line, I want you to be the best version of yourself does it invalidate the meaning because the speaker is a bad person i wouldn't say so because he's putting on the facade of being like a teacher as it were mm -hmm. to gain something from her but the purpose that that message is being used for would have been the the act of evil in that sense yeah. rather than the message itself and this is something i wanted to focus on a little bit is that so often people confuse the message with the messenger and what I mean by that is there are people who hear Jesus' word and Jesus' call from at best imperfect speakers. People who are hypocritical, people who have their own agenda, people who are acting like they're being supportive but really they're not. Yeah. And there are so many people who I come into contact with who will say, oh I used to go to church but then this thing happened or this person said this to me and I didn't know how a Christian could say that. I didn't understand why a Christian could do that to me. So yeah. it's a it's a um, a line from a, uh, a DC Talk song where they say the greatest enemy of Christ in today's world is Christians who acknowledge him with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And I, I think like this is something a lot of people struggle with. They struggle with the hypocrisy that a lot of Christians will will exhibit in their lifetime. Well, I think and that I th those kind of people as well they because they're sort of not like you say they're not living life 
in a Christian manner with their lifestyle, yet they'll pass on the word all the time. For me, I've always seen those people as being a little bit sort of like they're trying to find validation yeah. in what they do. It's like, well, it's all right if I do all these things because I'll be forgiven by God kind of thing. And it's like, well, yeah. that's not really how it works. That's not how it works, yeah. All I wanted to do was to encourage people that you might have had a bad experience with church. You might have had a bad experience with faith or anything like that but that doesn't mean Jesus loves you any less and you shouldn't let those experiences get in the way of having a relationship with God yeah and the reason this is particularly pertinent to me is I became a Christian in a, a church that was quite fundamentalist that it didn't really encourage independent thought it didn't really encourage you to question things and work things out for yourself it encouraged you to do what you were told and sounds sounds a bit like a hive mind well it wasn't a cult but it wasn't too far off you know and one of the things i had to do was i had to work out my own relationship with god completely separate from the surroundings that i was in and for me it's always resulted in a richer experience because i know that my my relationship with God is not dependent on context. I know that uh, my relationship with God still exists when I have absolute freedom, nobody looking down, looking over my shoulder to see if I'm being a good boy or not. I um, like that. That kind of attitude ties into lots of different things in life, I think, as well. Like, not just faith, but if, mm. say, for example, you decide to go to a guitar class, you want to learn how to play guitar, and the way that you're playing the guitar, someone will look at you and go, I don't think that's correct, and I'm going to yeah. spurn you for it, and I'm going to yeah. make you feel as though you're wrong, when really, there's no wrong way of doing it as long as you're playing guitar and you're enjoying it. I'm really glad you brought that up because that reminds me about being a teacher and one of the things you always strive to do no matter how frustrated you are is to be positive when dealing with your students to be as as warm and as caring as you can be and it's not always easy but you try to divorce your feelings for the child from their actions. You can be really angry at what they're doing but but you've still got to love and respect that kid and give them a fresh start every time they walk in the classroom. So I appreciate this is not an easy thing for a lot of people. I appreciate uh, particularly uh, anybody suffering from abuse of any kind that have yeah. had it meted out to them by the church. We'll be struggling for that. All I want to say is to give God another go because Jesus still loves you even if you haven't been loved the way you should be. Yeah, that seems fair for anybody who's had a crisis of faith. I think it's important to remember that if, if that's part of your belief system and if that's what makes you whole, then you've got to give it a try. It doesn't doesn't always have to apply to faith as well. It can be anything that gives you meaning, anything that gives you purpose and person. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap up the Finding the Faith in the Film section there. Ooh. We have had a pretty good response so far. We got a shout out on Twitter from Endon High School Religious Studies Department. They oh, told lovely. us that they said that we were brilliant and that uh, and they sort of recommended us to all their students. Amazing. Wobble John on Apple Podcasts described us as fun, friendly and waffle free. John, you have no idea how long it takes to cut the waffle out of this podcast. <laughs> we are not this concise in real life. Yeah, you should come for a pint with us, then you'll know. <laughs> yeah. If you want to take us out for a pint when this is all over, that's totally fine. In the meantime, why not give us a like or share or a review? It really helps get the podcast out to people. My heart does a little happy dance every time we see a new review. Yeah, no, I like hearing about them and making those little Instagram posts. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you can join us for our next episode, guys, which is on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We are doing The Big Dog. I've got to watch it. Christian I've still got to watch it, guys. Story. I'm so sorry. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Don't tell anyone what it is. And you'll hear from us next week. Phil, have you had a good time? I always have fun. I always have fun. I love doing yeah, these podcasts. I, and I love being able to talk to you about this stuff. You know, it's fantastic. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil. Editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact checking by Christina Stenard Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff. God in Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case just tell Phil through all the usual subspace channels.